Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, I speak with Filip Vlazov, editor-in-chief of Vogue Ukraine. He tells me about the challenges of making the magazine after Russia's invasion. Plus, the Washington Post announces a new bureau in Kyiv. And finally, a magazine celebrating role-playing and games. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Vogue Ukraine is about to reach a decade in print. As recently as February, the magazine went through a redesign, and it was all in the Ukrainian language. And then, Russia invaded Ukraine. What next for the title? And how they are dealing with the situation? How much they had to change the content? I had the pleasure to speak with Filip Vlazov, editor-in-chief for Vogue Ukraine. I have joined the Vogue Ukraine team like 10 years ago as a fashion director, and we launched it in 2013. So next year would be our 10-year anniversary. And it's really interesting, of course, we know everything that happened in Ukraine, which we'll talk a little bit more about that. But right in February, you actually had a, a redesign for the title as well, right? Actually, yes. This year we decided to go to bi-monthly and we decided to do the redesign, to, to freshen it up and to enlarge the format. And it was the first issue in the Ukrainian language, actually, because before we were publishing it in Russian. That's a really interesting. And, and now the content you guys are made, I, I believe, explain to us about what happens to the print edition. Of course, with everything that's been happening, you had to seize it. But I know there's a lot of digital content. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, as soon as the war broke, we decided to temporarily seize the print edition. But the digital has become our core. And we actually had quite a success during this difficult time. Like now we got over two and a half million website unique users per month, even though we are limited in topics, obviously, and we are now only in Ukrainian. So we lost the Russian audience mostly. And also we have zero budget for promotion at the moment. So and for the content, it is like humanitarian war related content to inspire Ukrainians and also to raise the awareness of this war and its consequences abroad. At the same time, we do not cover the war progress itself. There are the news outlets for that. Instead, we feature personal stories of the survivors. We give uh, advices how to survive during the war. And we remind our re readers of the heroic history and those unique cultural heritage of the country they are now fighting for. And that's really interesting because that's what I was going to ask. Of course, we hear news about Ukraine you know, all the time from the newspapers, from the TV channels, but it's good that perhaps Vogue Ukraine is showing kind of the human side as well. You know, there's still lots of art uh, made by Ukrainians and even fashion in a way, right? Right, sure. One of the major stories we were producing like months before the war broke out, it was a story on the artist Pavla Makov, who is representing Ukraine at the Venice Biennale. And this story, unfortunately, we couldn't run it in print, but the, a lot of other Vogue editions globally did publish it. So our voice is heard through the help of other Vogue editions that we collaborate with at the moment. I was going to ask, how is this collaboration going on? Because, you know, there are a lot of international editions. 
are they featuring a lot of content from Vogue Ukraine? Because as as you know, Philip, the whole world is paying a lot of attention to what's happening in Ukraine. So I'm sure there's been a lot of interest about what you guys are doing as well. Yes, lots of other regions actually syndicating some stories for us. So uh, as soon as we saw this interest, we decided to translate the major stories into English so it's easier for like other editions of Vogue. And also we do some stories especially for featuring in other editions globally. For example, an interview with the first lady of Ukraine, Elena Zelenska, that hit the Vogue.com on the April 8th. And it was also syndicated by most of the editions of Vogue. I mean, that's that's definitely a story that everybody wants to read. Uh, and, and Philip, tell us a bit more. I mean, this is incredibly sad because you're all based in Kyiv. You had an office there. But now what happened to the thing and, and yourself? I guess you're having to kind of work uh, across the world. I guess your thing is in different parts of Europe. I don't know. Tell us a bit more. Are there still yeah. people in Kyiv? What's going on? Yeah, it's true. Like half of my team is uh, still in Kyiv and uh, in the western Ukraine, like those areas that that are safest for the moment. And another half is spread all over the western Europe, like in Czech Republic, Poland, France, uh, here in Switzerland. And th- thanks to pandemics, actually, we used to be working remotely. And we learned the lesson, and now it's quite easy, actually, to, to communicate and to, to work on the new projects. And how's, how's everything, Zurich? Do you think you've been welcomed there? You know, I want to know more about, about your experience and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, this emotional side as well. Yeah, everybody was so grateful to people of all the countries that I personally came across a number of countries when fleeing Ukraine, like Moldova, Romania... Poland, Czech Republic, and they were really, really helpful, and uh, there was a lot of support. And Condé Nast from its side also helped us a lot to travel, to find accommodation, and yeah, we really, really appreciate that great help. I read a very beautiful kind of text you wrote for Vogue as well, talking about this aspect of nationality because you moved to Ukraine, uh, I don't know, was it seven years ago or something? And you very much kind of feel Ukrainian at heart, right? Tell us a a bit more this feeling, like now when you're you're outside, you're, you're so connected to the country, right? It is true. Like, actually, Russian, and I got Russian passport, but I was based in Kyiv for about eight years within the last decades. And there was basically no need to try to change the passport. Like, I got Ukrainian residence permit. I was living there legally and had no problems with that passport, but not anymore. <laughs> and so I had difficulties basically finding the legal way to stay in Europe, which I found finally in Switzerland. And you came with your dog, right? I think that's uh, very yes. important. Yes, I am. I'm sure. Sure, it's always with me. A very cute dog. What, what's what's the name of the dog? I, his name is Ari, and he's an Italian greyhound. It's it's a very beautiful. I saw the picture actually on the on the text. So, and is there perhaps is a little bit too early for me to ask this, Philip? But is there an intention to go back? to print as well or at the moment there are other priorities like focusing on this kind of increasing uh, digital sphere for Vogue Ukraine. Aside that we do increase the digital sphere for at the moment like we are gonna work on our YouTube channel and producing lots of new content but uh, we are also thinking of print uh, and we are planning to target the Western audience actually. We would like to publish a number of books the first one, it's almost ready. It's called Nine and a Half Years of Vogue in Ukraine. 
and it's basically the best of both Ukraine. We call it nine and a half years because we are like cut on the way to the 10th anniversary. So this is the title. And we're now considering whether we publish it in Ukraine, but gonna have this way we're gonna have some logistic issue to bring the whole amount of copies to the, to the West. Or maybe we find a collaborator in European Union, for example. And another book we are planning to do is the anthology of the contemporary Ukrainian prose and poetry, because like during the last three years, we've been commissioning the top Ukrainian writers and poets to do something special for Ukraine. And it's a huge collection, actually. And we're going to translate it into English and print it in both languages, Ukrainian and English. I cannot wait to look actually at the books, especially the one about nine and a half years of Vogue Ukraine. Thank you. And and tell us a bit how, I mean, of course, Vogue Ukraine, I believe, you know, there was a lot of fashion being discussed. There must be an incredible disruption for Ukrainian designers as well, right, at the moment. Uh, I know there was an incredibly talented scene in cities like Kiev. How is that working? I think most designers, they've, they've been incredibly affected by this, right? They are, sure. But some designers actually producing some uh, military ammunition and some pieces like T-shirts, fundraising funds for Ukraine. And also at the same time, many of them are still trying to work on the fall winter collection and also bring summer collections for the next year. And we actually planning to do a big event in Paris during the Fashion Week where we're going to be featuring like 15 top Ukrainian designers. I want to talk to you more in the future about this, Philip, because I have to say I've been fascinated, and this even before the war and everything, about some of the Ukrainian design. I love that kind of traditional embroidering clothing. I think right. it's so beautiful. And and to be honest, I would be very curious to know more Ukrainian designers who make that. I think that would be very much up my street. Similar, I think Kalush Orchestra had some interesting clothes. I don't know if you're watching Eurovision. I think it was quite beautiful. It's quite very Ukrainian in a way, right? It is. And actually many, many Ukrainian designers after this war, like this invasion, Broke out, started going back to their roots and they're searching, working at the museums, searching the archives and talking to the grannies in the villages who actually can embroider and stuff. So I guess in the later news collection, there's going to be lots of Ukrainian motives used and people are looking for that, like Ukrainians mostly. I am definitely looking for that, I have to say. And if people want to support kind of Vogue Ukraine, to read more because they are interested, I know you have an Instagram page, but I think the website, I guess that's the main kind of gateway to find out more things, right? Sure. The website is vogue.ua. And recently we launched an English section where we translate the major stories. So everybody's welcome to, to look at it. In a little while we might be trying the paywall and maybe we introduce the subscription to the English version but we'll see about that. Thank you so much Philip and if you want to find out more about their work at Vogue Ukraine make sure to go to vogue.ua Continuing on the topic of Ukraine, last week the Washington Post announced it is establishing a bureau in the country, with Isabel Kershodian at the helm as bureau chief. Isabel, who has roots in Ukraine, has been reporting in the country since January as tensions along the Russian border escalated and has previously been their Moscow correspondent. 
Monaco's Vincent McVinney spoke with her about the decision to open this bureau, as well as wider importance and difficulty of having international media present in conflict areas. As tragically happens in modern warfare, we've seen the active targeting of journalists just doing their jobs in Ukraine, with at least 23 already killed. But the Washington Post has announced it will establish a new bureau in the country, helmed by Isabel Kershudian, who joins us now. Isabel, good morning. Why has the Washington Post decided to take this potentially risky decision? Yeah, I mean, I think for us it's you know, kind of representative of our belief that this is a story that's really important, you know, not just for the region, but for the world. And it's going to last a long time. And that's not necessarily that the war will last a long time, although I'd say it's already lasted longer than many expected. But, you know, the kind of aftermath of this and the ripple effects of this are going to be important for us to report on for kind of the duration here. So it's, you know, kind of showing our long-term commitment to the story. And how big will the Bureau be and what are your priorities? Yeah, so right now uh, the Bureau is me uh, as Bureau Chief, uh, Max Barrick as you know our Chief Correspondent. We also have David Stern, who's been a long-time freelancer for us here in Ukraine and he's lived here for more than a decade. And then we have you know some local journalists who kind of work with us in our Bureau as well as researchers. So right now, like on a permanent kind of staff situation, it's five people and there will be more reporters, photographers, uh, video journalists kind of cycling in and out, rotating as needed. And as far as priorities go, I think it's people. There's a lot of kind of military things happening, but ultimately, uh, I think the reporting we want to do is you know, really focused on the people who end up paying the highest cost of this, whether that's you know, atrocities or war crimes that are being committed, displacement, you know, just people losing their homes and people also rebuilding. And, you know, I think that's kind of where we're going to gear our coverage. And we've seen a lot of citizen journalists capturing this war on social media. But why is it still important to have international media present in conflict areas? Yeah, and I think this war is incredibly unique with kind of the amount of social media video there is. Um, We have a great team at The Washington Post that, you know, kind of works to verify all of that video. But, you know, getting to the places where people are, where people are hiding in basements, that's how you get their stories. I think there's a huge value of being on the ground, of seeing the situation for yourself, of having kind of that perspective of what it's like here. You know, and also just being able to kind of reach the subjects that you're trying to capture what their existence is like. And when you're in it, you kind of experience it for yourself to a degree. Uh, So I think it's hugely important on the international side of it. I just think this is, you know, a war that really every country to some degree has some sort of stake in at this point, Um, whether it's, you know, the U.S. and Europe uh, who are you know supplying weapons to Ukraine considering how much to support Ukraine or you know it's other countries that are kind of looking at the example that Russia is setting and wondering could I do that in my region so that's i think why you have such a large international journalistic presence here uh, is that this is something that has really kind of uh, changed the world order um in a way we haven't seen since world war 2 and you know is really going to have a long-lasting effect on kind of what happens in the world going forward. 
Thank you so much, Isabel. And this interview was originally aired on Monday's edition of The Globalist. And now, for a change of pace, I spoke with John Power, founder of Weird Magazine. The new quarterly magazine is dedicated to those exploring the strange worlds and new horizons of role-playing games, war games and board games. He tells me more about the title. So the magazine is, I like to describe it as a celebration of tabletop games, um, mainly role-playing games, but also we dip into board games, war games, all those kind of things that have been around for 40, 50 years and currently going through an incredible, I don't want to say renaissance, but it's a really interesting time for games at the moment. More people are playing them than ever before. There's more access to games from covering more subjects made by more people from all around the world. So it's just a really fascinating time to be into games. And I have a background in journalism and I wanted to when I got back into these, these are all things that I was into as a kid when I was uh, you know, a teenager. And then I kind of fell out of it and got into music and all that kind of thing. But then a few years ago, I, I'd kept half an eye on it. And I noticed, you know, there seemed to be some really interesting stuff happening there. And I think a lot of people were kind of looking for something that didn't involve a screen and could be a bit more physical and sit around the table with their friends and, and so it was getting more and more popular and a few years ago I stumbled past a shop and saw some interesting stuff that I hadn't seen for decades and I thought I'll just pop in and have a look it can't hurt so I went in bought something for old time's sake and um, didn't realize that that would restart my obsession with all these kind of games and so I started reading more about them. I started buying lots more. And it was one thing I noticed is that the games had changed so much since I was a kid. They'd, they'd really come on leaps and bounds. But there, there wasn't really the media covering it in the way that I thought it should be. And I just, I, I thought it'd be a shame. There, there's so much interesting stuff happening and it's not really being reported on it's not being the stories aren't being told which for a hobby which is all about stories i think was was criminal at the time so i had this idea and i thought oh I, I know at some point i'd love to do this magazine but i was really busy with my day job and that it just it kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and, and then the pandemic hit and um, at the time I was working mainly uh, like managing DJs and club artists, doing PR for record labels. And within a few months that all just disappeared and there was absolutely, I was just sitting on the sofa with not much to do. So finally I had the time to do this and I thought, I know, let's just give it a go and try and give it a shot and see what happens. I've never, I've written for magazines before and obviously done PR a lot, but I'd never edited or published the magazine how hard would it be great usage of your time i have to say you know because the magazine <laughs> looks pretty cool so I, well, I thought it would be like a, a little experiment and it might work and um, it turned out to be a lot more successful than i could have hoped and expected and i, I think we published i printed 500 copies of the first issue thinking that would last me six months a year who knows how long 
and they all went in two weeks and we're now on the fourth printing of that first issue and the second issue did even better and so then I took a little break and now I'm coming back with um, this summer we're releasing our third issue and we're going to be quarterly after that and, oh, and you asked about the name of yes uh, we need to know yes. about the pet pen <laughs> so the name uh, it's a play on words on um, the film weird science uh, which is uh, if you're into if you grew up in the 1980s and you're a geeky young boy you were probably quite obsessed with it for various reasons and i just and then i changed the word slightly so it felt a bit more magical the spelling of weird and uh, it's just I think like most people that write, I've, I'm kind of unhealthily addicted to puns and bad plays on words. So it made sense at the time. And of course, you at the moment, uh, you're based in Belgium, but you're from the UK. But what is interesting as well, reading the magazine, this, it's quite an international thing. So I think, you know, this magazine could be aimed for, you know, people that like, you know, those fantasy games. It doesn't matter if you're in Brazil, if you're in Southeast Asia or, or in Europe. Uh, in reality. So I think you made this magazine thinking about someone from, not uh, related to a specific country, right? No, totally, totally. And that was one of the reasons I really wanted to do it. As I said, the, it's such an interesting, diverse scene at the moment. And whilst it's incredibly dominated by one, certainly the role-playing games, it's very dominated by Dungeons and Dragons, which if most people will have heard of that, even if they don't know what anything else is, you'll know what Dungeons and Dragons is. But beyond that, there is incredible scenes in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, all across the world. Some of the most interesting stuff is happening in these, you know, in places where we haven't traditionally gone looking for the games and some of the best writers and artists and designers are coming out of these areas which have been traditionally neglected and part of the magazine was I wanted to showcase some of these incredible talents from around the world and and hopefully bring them to other people's attention and it's our sales have been really global it's when we're packing it up it's Obviously, you know, we sell quite a lot to Brazil, Argentina, uh, Southeast Asia, Australia. America is huge, which really caught me out because, um, I mean, obviously that's where it's a huge market over there. But when I started this, I thought it would be you know, people my age from the UK reading it. Um, you know, at least over half our sales are in the US, which is good. But genuinely, we get people buying it from all over the place and... There was definitely a gap in the market, I guess, for, for something like this, right? Because you even mentioned that some people, especially role-playing games, they want something perhaps not necessarily on the screen, you know? And, and, and I think it's the same with a magazine, right? Instead of, you know, just reading plenty of articles online, it's such a nicely done product that I can see why people would be interested in that, right? Yeah, and it's given the people who we cover space so much is based around social media and trying to come up with some pithy thing in 280 words and you kind of lose so much of the nuance and the detail and I wanted to be able to go yeah look let's sit down with from our first issue Kieran Gillen and we'll go let's do a 10 page interview with him because we've got the space here and we can we can do that I mean, it's what I've always loved about magazines is they have that ability to 
open you up to new ideas, new sort of names, people. I mean, for music, I always used to love, you could pick up Select or something when I was a kid, and yes, it would have Oasis on the cover, but then by sticking out on the cover, the, you know, you then discover so many other new stuff that you wouldn't otherwise know, where websites, people click on the story they want to read, and then generally they then click around to read other stuff. Whereas if you buy a magazine, you're almost locked in. You've got to find out and you've got to read it and you'll find about stuff that you perhaps didn't think you were going to be interested in. But maybe now you'll check it out and you'll give it more time. And I think that's one of the great things about magazines is that it doesn't silo information off. A lot of people have said to me what they've really liked about it and what surprised them is traditionally with these kind of magazines like Dungeons and Dragons, TSR, who run that, they would put out their own magazine or Games Workshop in the UK who do Warhammer, they put out their own magazine and it just covers that one thing. And people were, there's a lot of people saying they were quite surprised by the first issue because it covered such a wide range of things. But I think the people that are into these this kind of stuff, they're curious, you know, by its nature, it's people that are interested in strange things. And if you can grab them with something interesting and then they'll keep turning the page, they'll keep turning the page and they'll find stuff that they just never knew that they were going to be interested in. I love the story about uh, the role-playing thirsty sword lesbians. It's, I mean, again, that's the surprise uh, bit, you know, never, probably never heard about the game if I didn't read the amazing article in, in, in issue two here in front well, of that, me. Exactly. I mean, firstly, Sword of Lesbians, is, I, as soon as I saw it, I had to get it in. And it's, that's the kind of game that I find so interesting at the moment because, uh, you know, say when people think of these games, you inevitably think about Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, or a game that's not too far removed from that and is essentially running down in some pit and killing orcs and goblins or whatever but these days there's just so many more options than that you know there's games where you play as little old ladies solving occult mysteries the games about just exploring the world games that teach you sign language as you play games uh, there's one here we covered Jiangxi in the first issue it's about being a Chinese immigrant in early 20th century America running a restaurant now that also involves vampires attacking you too but there's just, there's so many options now from games which are very combat focused to games which are completely peaceful and just about, I mean, there's a lot of, solo games are really big as well now, uh, journaling games, and it's almost impossible to pin down what a role-playing game or a tabletop game is now, because it can just be about absolutely anything, and that's what I really love about it at the moment. If people are interested to find out more about weird science or, you know, to buy the previous issues, perhaps the best place is your website, I guess, right? Yeah. So it's, that's just weird, W-Y-R-D, science.online. As I said, we're just finishing up issue three at the moment, which is, we're going to go to Kickstarter with it. Uh, we did the first two via Kickstarter, which is, you know, if someone wants to start a magazine, essentially on their own from a spare bedroom, then Kickstarter's great for that. Um, so we got issue free Kickstarter, but I'm also hoping to try and move people onto a subscription model going forward. I think it's just, it's so much work doing a Kickstarter campaign. And I, 
you know, we've got a really good following now and I want to kind of convert that into, so I, so I can sit there and say, I know that in three months time, there's going to be another issue out in six months time, there'll be another issue out and that, but yeah, I mean, by the time this interview goes out, we'll probably have the Kickstarter up for issue three and uh, yeah, hopefully that'll be doing well. Thank you so much, John. For more information, go to weirdscience.online and they spell weird as W-Y-R-D. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to email me at fp And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. Meanwhile, if you like the show, subscribe to it on monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify as well. You can also subscribe to Monaco Magazine on our website. Before we go, a little song for you. It's the winning song at the Eurovision Song Contest this year, Kalush Orchestra with Stefania. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. <laughs>